0: The Big Screen is sponsored in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, with additional support from Merck and Daiichi Sankyo, a company known for its passion for innovation and compassion for patients. Offscript Health would also like to thank Stupid Cancer, the National Cancer Institute, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for their contributions to this series.
1: Testing, testing. Let's make sure this works. Boom, boom, boom. Check, check, check. All right. We're good. From Offscript Health, my name is Matthew Zachary, and I'm really excited to tell you about this new show I'm producing with...
0: Betsy Shepard. That's me. I'm a senior producer here at Offscript Health, and together Matt and I have been putting together a little thing called The Big Screen.
1: And no, it's not a podcast about movies, but I can see how some of you might think that.
0: It's a show about cancer screening. And while that might not sound like the most interesting podcast topic, it's actually kind of a crazy story.
1: Okay, so it's like this. Cancer's been a death sentence throughout most of human history, right? And then screening tech shows up and gradually something starts to happen cancer becomes treatable.
0: Cancer screening develops along watershed moments in human history. So we got the women's movement, the post-war technology boom. We've got the Human Genome Project. And as screening becomes more sophisticated, cancer mortality continues to decline.
1: So we're making progress, we're making progress, and boom! COVID-19 hits. So I was diagnosed with brain cancer in 95. And I I knew based on my experience that the pandemic was going to totally train wreck the cancer
0: ecosystem. And your hunch was right. The National Cancer Institute now estimates that there will be 10,000 additional deaths because of missed cancer screenings and delayed treatment. And that's just in breast and colorectal cancers alone.
1: Wait, wait. So there's yet another major health crisis forming in the wake of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, we live in crazy times. But if there's any lesson to be learned here, it's that routine cancer screenings matter.
1: So I remember the first time I met Fran Drescher, and she had just been diagnosed with endometrial cancer, and we were at this gala. And she coined a phrase which at the time was quite provocative. She said, stage one is the cure. And what she meant by that was that let's stop all hoping for some one magic pill to save us all and focus on trying to find cancer early when it's more treatable.
0: Absolutely. The earlier the diagnosis, the better. And that's something that hits close to home for me too, because my mom was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer back in 2016. And she went through treatment and thankfully she's in remission now. But if her doctors hadn't caught the cancer right when they did, she might not be around today.
1: You know, many cancers are detectable, some are not. And as a card carrying member of the young adult cancer community, I speak for hundreds of thousands of people for whom there's no way to know you have cancer. But for those who have a cancer that is screenable and detectable, give an average of ninety percent survival rates if found early versus 20% if not. So so what are the human stories behind these stats? They're just stats, but there are people behind these stats. And that is the guiding question of the big screen.
0: In this three-part series, we put early detection under the microscope and uncover the fascinating history of how screening made cancer survivorship possible. That's episode one.
1: In episode two, we visit with patients and researchers in the trenches to understand how exactly the pandemic is impacting the cancer community.
0: And then in episode three, we talk about the future of screening, new innovations, and how to make screening more pandemic-proof.
1: It's not a podcast about movies, but it is A great story told in three acts. Welcome to the big screen.
2: Cancer is a long and drawn-out disease. What can we do? If the disease were discovered in time, they could be cured. There have been remarkable advancements, showing a decrease in the death rate from cancer. You're going to hear one thing that's repeated over and over and over again. The earlier cancer can be detected, the better off the person that has it is going to be.
0: Ready, set, here we go. This is episode one The Fight Against Enemy X. It's 1942. We're in the office of a police inspector who's telling his top detective about a faceless killer terrorizing the city. Picture two poker faced men surrounded by lots of shadows and curls of cigarette smoke. You know, just Classic film war setup.
2: Well, what's up, Inspector? Well, I suppose you read the death of Senator Bentley yesterday. Yes, I did. Very, uh, very sudden, wasn't it? Very. I hadn't the least bit of evidence, but I believe Bentley was murdered. On what do you base your belief? There was the imprint of an X on his forehead. And you infer that, that was the signature of the murderer? I know it is. Keith, one of the greatest killers in the world is loose in New York. Fifteen men and women found dead yesterday and on the forehead of every one of them there was scrawled an X. Enemy X is killing the kind of people we can't afford to lose.
1: And it turns out the serial killer is dum-dum-dum canceled.
0: Way to go, detective.
1: Just as
2: surely as if they were slain by an unseen enemy. One hundred and fifty five thousand of our people will be killed by cancer this year. So Many of these people die needlessly. If the disease were discovered in time, they could be
0: cured. These clips are from a 1942 film called Enemy X, made by the U.S. Public Health Service and the American Society for the Control of Cancer. It's one of the first large scale educational films about early detection. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in this episode the development of screening throughout the 20th century and the impact that that has on cancer mortality. Oh, rates.
1: Slow down, slow. Down. Maybe we should just start with cancer screening 101. What is it? And what's the difference between early detection and screening?
0: Early detection is a broad term for different strategies to find cancer early. Screening, Is more specific. It refers to various tests that are given to the general population to identify those individuals who have cancer. The tests have different guidelines for different ages, which have changed significantly over time.
1: So like a moving target.
0: It's a moving target. And it's a little confusing. So I talked to one of the foremost experts on cancer screening.
1: My
3: name is Lisa Richardson. I'm the division director of the cancer prevention and control at CDC. And I'm an oncologist by training, so I have a passion for taking care of cancer patients.
1: So that's all you got? The head of the CDC's cancer division? She is a public health genius, and I'm just so excited that you got to talk to her.
0: She really knows her stuff. We sit down, and she tells me her story, how she grew up in rural North Carolina and wanted to become a doctor in an early age to help people who didn't have access to medical care. We'll talk more about that later, but first, let's just go over the basics.
3: Cancer screening is done before people have symptoms. So it's a medical test that you could get. The four cancers that we test for regularly are breast cancer with mammography, colorectal cancer with blood stool test and colonoscopy, cervical cancer with a pap test and a human papillomavirus test, and the most recent one is lung cancer screening with a low resolution
0: CT scan.
1: That's it. Like, there's no screening tests for anything else, just those four kinds of cancer? Like, there's hundreds of cancers.
0: Yeah, it's a small number, and that's something the medical community has been grappling with. But here's the thing. Screening tests take a really long time to develop.
3: So, cancer screening really has two components. How common is the cancer in the population? And you'll notice that almost all of them start at 50, because cancer becomes more common as you age. And then the other big thing that we look for is, is there anything you can do about it once you find the cancer? So if you find it early and you take the cancer out, is the person cured? And those really are the four tests where we've proven with research and clinical trials that we can find it before it becomes symptomatic. People have symptoms and there's therapies for it that can actually cure
0: people. So it's a long time. So there are tests for other types of cancer out there, but they're not considered screening tests because they don't significantly reduce cancer mortality rates, or they haven't yet been proven to reduce cancer mortality. So there might be a test out there that'll be used for screening in the future, but again, it's a lengthy process. Take the pap smear, for example. It was first developed in the 1920s, but it wasn't until the 1980s that it became widely used. Wait, wait, hold up,
1: hold up. Why the hell did it take almost 60 years for the pap smear to go mainstream. Like imagine all the lives that could have been saved if it was perhaps less than 60 years.
0: Yeah, well, we like to think that medical breakthroughs just happen and society is magically transformed, but that's just not how things work. The tests have to go through research trials and then clinical trials and then expanded clinical trials. And then once they pass the muster, Public health officials need to educate providers and the public about it and train people how to give the test and process the results. It's a long process, and I wanted to find out more about how screening developed. So I spoke to a medical historian.
4: My name is Kirsten Gardner. I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Texas, San Antonio.
0: In the early 2000s, Dr. Gardner is in graduate school. She's studying history when All of a sudden, her mom is diagnosed with stage three breast cancer.
4: And I'm finding myself in the archives going through medical journals and thinking about what did people do 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago.
0: And she discovers something that's really interesting. The early cancer movement is largely organized by women's groups. And Dr. Gardner writes a book about it.
4: The major argument that I make in this book is that women have been talking about cancer, particularly in all female places. Women's clubs have been talking about cancer. They've been talking about early detection, not least of all because women's cancers are some of the cancers that manifest in their early
0: stages. Early 1900s, people are dropping dead left and right from cancer. It's terrifying. Enemy X can strike at time, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. Because cancer research isn't even a thing yet. Then, in 1913, we get the American Society for the Control of Cancer. It's an organization that forms to educate people about cancer and its warning signs.
2: American Society for the Control of Cancer says, remember that early cancer can be cured. Don't take a chance with cancer. Don't
1: So what does it do?
0: It's mainly a cancer awareness campaign. It hosts meetings and publishes articles, and it mails out pamphlets with cancer facts, like how one out of every eight women and one out of every 12 men over the age of 35 will get cancer.
1: So women are getting cancer at much higher rates than men.
0: Yes, and they're dying of cancer at much higher rates, too. At this time, women make up 60% of cancer deaths in the U.S., So women take up the cause as their own.
4: In the 19-teens and 20s, there's a lot of groundwork for talking about early detection, writing pamphlets, organizing women's clubs. And a lot of that was parlor discussions taking place in settings like the YWCA, in canneries. We know the National Association of Colored Women jumped on board by the late
2: 30s. She decides to hear a noted doctor speak at the women's club.
3: I'm sure we're all very grateful to you, Dr. Williams, for this highly informative talk on breast cancer. I know we've all learned a great deal and that we are all reassured that each of us can do something to protect ourselves against this disease.
4: Everyone won in this situation. The women felt empowered with their knowledge, and the medical profession was getting more women to go to the doctor's office earlier. And there were the hopes that this would lead to declining mortalities in cancer, which it did.
1: So once again, women organized to save the world.
0: Oh, yeah. Just wait. It gets so much better. In the 1930s, something called the Women's Field Army Forms. And the women even wear military-style uniforms to show how committed they are to this fight. No ribbons. They did have ribbons, actually. Oh, boy. They had ribbons that indicated their medical expertise. Public meetings
1: arranged
2: by leaders in the war against cancer are being held throughout the country under the auspices of the Women's Field Army of the American Society for the Control of Cancer.
4: And this organization emerged in the next few years with a lot of energy. And the membership for the Women's Field Army started as a few dozen, went to 500,000. And it was all based on this premise of education. Their weapon was education.
0: Here's a clip of Marjorie Illig, the commander of the Women's Field Army, from our new favorite movie, Enemy X. Well,
3: the Women's Field Army, Mr. Bryson, is a voluntary group banded together to fight cancer. We endeavor to keep the message of cancer control constantly before our respective community. This we do by serving as an information center, by seeing to it that no one is without proper medical treatment.
4: It starts with kind of a glimmer of hope And then over time, that blossoms into a a really powerful movement that has involved both popular lay audiences and medical and scientific audiences.
0: The Women's Field Army loses steam during World War II, but it sets the stage for other national cancer networks to form. And after the war, the focus of the movement shifts.
4: What begins occurring in the 1940s is, of course, the country goes to war. There's a shift in how we're thinking about medical technology, the potential of science. And so really quite quickly in 1945, when the war ends, it shifts from a focus almost exclusively on education to one that is very much based on research as well
2: in addition to the army of workers with microscopes and laboratories, are the latest and in some ways the most formidable weapons of science, the huge machines for smashing the atom, which are being used in studies of the basic problems of cancer. To the research workers, therefore, we can look for the future treatment of cancer, and on their findings will depend hundreds of thousands of lives.
0: The Big Screen is sponsored in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, creating a better future for people with cancer. Bristol-Myers Squibb is inspired by a single vision, transforming patients' lives through science. The goal of the company's cancer research is to deliver medicines that offer each patient a better, healthier life, and to make cure a possibility. For more information, visit bms.com. The Big Screen is also sponsored in part by Daiichi Senkyo, With more than 100 years of scientific expertise, Daiichi Sankyo draws upon a rich legacy of innovation and a robust pipeline of promising new medicines to help patients. Daiichi Sankyo is powered by scientists that push beyond traditional thinking to create transformative medicines for people with cancer. For more information, visit DaiichiSankyo.com. Research can't happen without money. And a brilliant businesswoman named Mary Lasker makes that happen.
1: We did a whole episode on her for the Cancer Mavericks documentary series.
0: Yeah, that's the one. And listeners should check out Cancer Mavericks for more on her. But for our purposes, Mary Lasker reorganizes the American Society for Cancer Control in 1944 into what we now know today as the American Cancer Society. She gets a lot of donations and uses the money to sponsor clinical trials for the pap smear. Here again is Dr. Lisa Richardson.
3: The first research was done in the 1920s is the pap test for cervical cancer. Dr. Papanikolaou, the guy who developed the test, studied reproductive health in women and came up with this test to look at cells under the microscope to see if they were abnormal. And that's how the test got its name, the pap test.
1: So, so the pap smear is invented by a guy named Dr. Pap. Uh, Nickel-out.
0: What are the chances, right? So, Dr. Papp invents his test, but it gets shelved.
3: People didn't believe it was true that you could actually look for cancer, and so he had a really hard time getting, you know, uptake in the clinic. The trial was done in the 1940s that showed that if you screened with this test at regular intervals, that you could find the abnormal cells, you could treat the woman, and prevent the cancer or find it when it was small. So it was a huge impact. About 10 or more years ago, Dr.
2: Papaniclo devised a test for cancer. With a simple spatula like this, the cervix is rubbed and then... The cells which accumulate on the spatula are rubbed on a slide in this manner. By proper examination of that slide, with a remarkably high percentage of success, the diagnosis of cancer can be made. And as a result, many more early cases have come to light.
0: The American Cancer Society sponsors clinical trials for the pap test in the 50s. It's proven effective, and boom, we get our first national screening guideline in the 1970s. Again, takes a long time. But from that point on, cervical cancer deaths drop by a staggering 70%.
1: That's huge.
0: Yeah. It's uh, big. It's a big screen. I see what you did there. Forget I said that. (laughs) Moving right along, the pap smear becomes the gold standard of cancer screening. Here again, Dr. Gardner.
4: You know, the pap smear kind of provided this great model of a tool that worked that could be applied to a mass population. And then when mammography came onto the scene, they were trying to do the same thing with mammography and have it apply equally to all populations.
0: Researchers start using mammography to look for breast tumors in the 1950s. Again, during this post-war technology boom.
4: We begin to see some dabbling in the field in the 30s and 40s. But by the 1950s, and again, we are investing in science and technology, Several different people working in radiology, um, Dr. Egan and Dr. Gershon Cohen in particular, and they're finding what appear to be very compelling outcomes that mammography is a great screening tool. And by 1971, that has made it to medical publications and popular publications.
0: We're now in the year 1971 and something historic happens. Congress passes the National Cancer Act.
1: Members of the Senate, members of the House, ladies and gentlemen, we are here
2: today for the purpose of signing the Cancer Act of 1971, for the conquest of cancer, to attempt to find a cure.
0: So the bill creates the National Clinical Trials Network, and those trials provide hard evidence that mammograms save lives.
2: Mammography is a safe, reliable, an aesthetically acceptable method of diagnosis of breast diseases in their early stages. There have been remarkable advancements, showing a decrease in the death rate from cancer.
0: And then we get our first national breast screening guidelines. In the 1980s. Again, these things take time. But since those guidelines were passed, breast cancer deaths have decreased by a whopping 40%.
1: Yet another big screen.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So remember at the beginning of the show how women made up the majority of cancer deaths?
1: Yeah, it was a 60-40 split, right?
0: That's right. But now those numbers have flipped. Women now make up only 40% of cancer deaths. And that's largely because of pap smears and mammography.
1: So the screenings go into effect and cancer deaths start dropping across the board.
0: No, not exactly. Screening numbers go up and cancer mortality goes down. But sadly, those numbers are not evenly distributed amongst the population because the rate of breast cancer mortality for black women actually goes up pretty significantly throughout the 1980s.
1: So what you're saying is that not all cancer screenings are created equal.
0: Right. I mean, there are other factors at play, but yes, that's part of the problem. Dr. Kirsten Gardner is here to explain.
4: When we look at rates of cancer incidence and mortality, women of color are dying at far higher rates than white women today still. And I think we need to both recognize the bias in cancer education that existed for the past 100 years and still does today. But we also need to acknowledge that the technologies of detection, very often when we find machines that are not working up to par, that are faulty, they're happening in impoverished communities. And we also know that women of color are often being diagnosed at later stages than white women. And so while the education might have, certainly bear some of that burden, I think we also need to think about the healthcare industry, um, how we are maintaining early detection devices and where they are appearing, who they're accessible to, and then follow-up visits as well. So that detection is only one part of the story. Post-detection, you need to have access to a good clinic or physician to visit, and then access to treatment. This is a very systemic issue within American medicine, and it's privileging of, in this case, white female bodies.
0: So, these health disparities become more apparent in the 1980s. And it's women's organizations, once again, that push the government to act. Congress passes legislation in 1990 that results in the establishment of the National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program.
1: That's a bad acronym.
0: <laughs> no, that doesn't work. Um,
1: it's
0: a lot of syllables. But it packs a punch. And guess who heads it up? It's our friend, Dr. Lisa Richardson.
3: My area of research at CDC is uninsurance, people that don't have doctors, those types of things. And that really is what drives me in public health to try to help people. Because you don't have the same outcomes depending on which racial and ethnic group, the socioeconomic status, whether you have health insurance or not. All of those things impact how long you're going to live with cancer.
0: The program starts to address racial and economic disparities in screening. And finally, breast cancer mortality in Black women starts to go down.
3: Over the years, we've served about 5 million women, diagnosed tens of thousands of cancers. And almost 75% of the women we reach are racial and ethnic minority women. And the income ceiling is 250% of poverty. So most of the women are poor as well.
0: But we still have a long way to go because black women are still 40 to 50 percent more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. And we know that screening is one of the key tools to reducing disparities in cancer mortality. So access to screening and healthcare continues to be a major challenge going forward.
1: So what about screenings for other types of cancer?
0: Well, those are relatively newer. We get colonoscopy screening guidelines in the 1990s, which reduce colon cancer mortality by about 50%. And in the early 2000s, we get lung cancer screening guidelines, which reduce lung cancer mortality by about 20%. But the biggest screening innovation in the last couple of decades is the completion of the Human Genome Project.
1: With this profound new knowledge, humankind is on the verge of gaining immense new power to heal. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives. It will revolutionize the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of most, if not all, human diseases like cancer by attacking their genetic roots. That sounds like really important.
0: Well, I mean, it's only revolutionized medical science as we know it, shown us the genetic underpinnings of disease, and given rise to the very concept of precision medicine. I mean, no big deal.
1: So let's go through this. What exactly is the Human Genome Project? In
0: 1990, researchers set out to sequence the human genome, our entire set of genetic information. They complete their work in 2003, and now we have the ability to look under the hood and find all the genetic mutations that cause cancer.
1: Some of these genetic tests tell you if you're predisposed to certain kinds of cancer.
0: For certain cancers, yes. Scientists have identified genes like BRCA1, BRCA2, HER2, and others, which put you at a higher risk of developing cancer over the course of your lifetime. And so if you do have those genes, your doctor can more closely monitor you and screen you more often.
1: So how close... How close are we to those tricorders on Star Trek?
0: We're not there yet. We'll talk more about the future of screening in Episode 3. But at the present moment, biotech is accelerating at an unprecedented pace.
1: So your odds of surviving cancer are better than ever.
0: Yes and no. Because we also live in a time when decades and decades of medical progress has been disrupted in the blink of an eye. The
1: number of people being diagnosed with cancer is dropping nationwide and that's causing well concern for doctors, medical professionals fear. It's a result of people not getting proper screenings because well, they're hesitant to visit a doctor's office in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. Enemy X is back.
0: Yeah, it's enemy X by a different name. Coronavirus is showing that despite all of our medical progress, all of the things that we've been talking about in this episode, disease still crops up in new and powerful forms that we're totally unprepared to deal with.
1: And I'm guessing that it's making all of those racial and socioeconomic disparities that existed before that much worse.
0: Yes. And that's got all the makings of a syndemic.
1: Syndemic? Come on, now you're just... You're making up words.
0: A syndemic is something that we'll cover in the next episode. Listen now to the big screen part two. All the makings of a syndemic. We'll tell you what that curious word means and what happens when early detection gets delayed. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Big Screen. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Big Screen is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our hosts are Betsy Shepard and Matthew Zachary. The Big Screen is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at no t, dot com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.